Hey, it's Dallas, and I have a question for you. Well, actually, I have two questions for you. And for each of these questions, we need to take a little bit of a vacation to get ourselves in the proper mindset. So let's imagine that you and your best friend are sitting on the beach in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. It's a hot day, the sun's shining down, you've been piling chips and guac into your face for the past hour, and all of a sudden you're dying for a nice, cold Mexican beer. And just then, your best friends is they're going to go get a can of beer, and they'll get one for you as well. Yes. They mentioned they saw an OXO just down the beach. And if you're unfamiliar with an OXO, it's basically Mexico's version of a 7-Eleven. It's just a small gas station. So anyway, your friend tells you that they'll grab you a beer, and you can pay them back later. And they tell you that they'll only buy your beer for the price you're willing to pay, and not one penny more. So with that in mind, while you're sitting on the beach in Mexico, how much do you tell your friend that you're willing to spend on that beer from that gas station? Take a second and consider it. Okay, got it? So now for the second question. So the very same setup. Mexican beach, hot day, chips and guac, you're thirsty. Your friend stands up and says the same thing, which again is they'll get you a beer for the price you're willing to pay or less, but they won't pay any more than what you're willing to pay. But here's where things get a little bit different. Rather than that beer coming from an OXO gas station, the nearest beer is at one of those big, fancy Oceanside resorts. So now given this context, a nice resort instead of a gas station, what price do you tell your friend you're willing to pay for that beer? Take a second and consider that one. Okay, so again, there is no difference in your beer drinking experience. Whether the beer came from the dingy gas station or the fancy resort, you're still drinking it on the same beach. It doesn't take any longer to get it because you're not even the one getting it. And there's no difference in the quality of the beer. It's literally the same beer out of the same can consumed in the very same location. But despite literally no difference in the beer drinking experience, the majority of you said you'd pay more for a beer from the fancy resort than you would from the gas station and quite a bit more. So why is this? Why do we willingly pay so much more for the very same can of beer when the only variable in this case is which refrigerator it came out of? There are actually a lot of variables here. A lot of things impact that decision. Some of them are obvious, and you're probably already thinking about them, but some of them aren't so obvious. So with that in mind, let's take a quick break, and then we'll dig into this one. This is Dallas McLaughlin, and you're listening to Unconsidered, the podcast where we get inside the mind of the modern entrepreneur, business owner, and marketer. We, for lack of a better word, is good. If you don't know which door to open, always account for variable change. There is a zero percent chance. You dropped 150 grand on a fucking education, could have got for a dollar fifty in late charges. Tell me something I don't already know. Come on, we just made the deal of our lifetime. We should celebrate. We're in a completely fraudulent system. Fairy dust. It doesn't exist. The question I opened this episode with is the exact scenario laid out to research respondents by Nobel Prize winning behavioral economist Richard Thaler. This was done in 1985 in his research paper titled Mental Accounting and Consumer Choice. And unlike you, Respondents in his research were in one group or the other. They didn't get asked both questions, so there was no comparison that took place between gas station and resorts. 
it was a much more accurate representation of how the given context of a transaction impacts the purchase price. For example, he found that people who were put in the fancy resort group were willing to pay an average of 76% more for their can of beer compared to the group getting their beer from a gas station. And again, the resort group was told nothing of a gas station, and the gas station group was told nothing of a resort. So this created a much cleaner comparison for researchers when the only variable in the research was the context of where the transaction occurred. So to put those differences into actual inflation-adjusted dollars, the people who were in the gas station group said they'd pay on average $4.28 for a can of beer, which, I mean, that feels about right to me. Now compare this number to the group who was told the nearest beer was at a fancy resort. This group said the average price that they would pay for that same can of beer was $7.56. And I don't care who you are, that's definitely an overpriced can of beer, but at the same time, I've personally willingly paid more than that for a can of beer. So when you compare these numbers, $4.28 for a gas station beer and $7.56 for a resort beer, you start to see just how much the context of a transaction can influence the price people are willing to pay for the very same product, even when the product or service isn't experienced within the context of where the product or service came from, or even when the product is identical. Think of how different it feels to buy a cell phone from the Apple store compared to buying the same phone inside of a T-Mobile store. It's just not the same experience. Or what about buying a used car from a certified BMW dealership compared to the same car but from one of those skeezy used car lots along the highway? Or even buying a pound of bananas from the farmer's market compared to one of those high-end grocery stores with chandeliers in the aisles like a Byerly's? And in those examples, the buyer is physically experiencing the change in context which can come in many forms, such as the quality of the customer service, how they were greeted when they walked in, the atmosphere of the location, which could be the chandeliers in the aisles, or even the demographics and psychographics of the other shoppers in the store, which then one buyer compares themselves to. In our beer on the beach scenario, even though our respondents didn't physically experience this context switch, they still considered the context of where that transaction was going to occur. A resort has a better proverbial brand or brand expectation than a gas station, and that brand comes with a premium price tag in the buyer's mind. Another factor is that people associated gas stations with ubiquity, meaning if there's one gas station, there's likely more gas stations within a reasonable distance. Alternatively, resorts were associated with seclusion. And this is the first example where scarcity enters the conversation. There's a thinking of, well, there's probably several gas stations, but only one resort. And that drives an increase in what a buyer will expect to pay, partly because they think it's the only one around who has what they want. Fairness was another consideration. When potential buyers have a reference point in mind, and in this example, people will likely know the reference price of a can of beer, a potential buyer will find it incredibly unfair if a gas station charges $7.50. The buyer will feel like they're being taken advantage of, and they'll probably just refuse the purchase altogether. However, that same price point is a little bit more fair when a resort asks for it, partly because buyers feel the resort has earned it. At least that's the perception, and that perception exists because of trust. In the minds of the potential buyers, trust of an individual brand or the category of the business matters. Naturally, a buyer trusts a big fancy resort more than a gas station, and this perceived trust has been established and built over decades of buyer experiences. It's similar to how we trust established banks more than a payday loan, for example, or even more than some of those new online-only banks. 
we're willing to open our wallets a little bit more to engage with more trusted brands. Lastly, and most importantly, one of the biggest differentiators in what a buyer was willing to pay was the state of their personal finances. And that might seem obvious, but when you dig in a little deeper and think about why, it becomes a little bit more nuanced. In the research, high-income participants said they'd pay more for a beer from the resort, but low-income participants were really unchanged in what they'd pay. They said they'd pay roughly the same for a gas station beer as they would for a resort beer, because to them, it didn't matter where it came from, because they could only afford to spend so much on any given beer. Again, this is scarcity, but this is financial scarcity, and this is one of the types of scarcity that we need to dig into, because this is what's influencing the buying decision of nearly every one of your customers. And that could be a good thing, or it could be a bad thing. Let's talk about scarcity in its more broad sense for a minute. We tend to think of scarcity in general terms, like how 1.2 billion people live without electricity, how 663 million people don't have access to clean water, and how nearly 11% of the world's population lives with less than $2 per day. Thankfully, those things likely aren't personally impacting you, but we're still impacted by scarcity almost every single day, and that's because it shows up in a lot of other less noticeable places. Like your time can be a scarcity. If you own a business, finding qualified labor could be a scarcity. If you're unemployed, job openings could be a scarcity. Products and services can also be a scarcity, like medication, the new iPhone you can't get your hands on, or even toilet paper, it turns out. So we too deal with scarcity every day. And when we're dealing with scarcity of some sort, the scarcity of that resource begins to consume our available mental resources. Things like our attention span, our memory, and executive control are all negatively impacted until that want or that need or that desire is fulfilled. And I'm sure you can all remember a time when you were trying to buy a product or a concert ticket or get reservations at that cool new restaurant only to find out it was sold out. And then you wanted it more and it became all you could think about. That's because scarcity does two strange things to us. The first is a little less surprising. It's called attentional awareness and explains almost every advertisement you've ever seen. For example, in research studies, people who are hungry are far more likely to detect food-related cues on a computer screen compared to people who've recently eaten. And people who are thirsty are more likely to focus on water-related cues. Alcoholics and dieters are more likely to notice alcohol and food-related cues. And people with retirement or financial anxiety are naturally more responsive to retirement or money-related cues on a computer screen. Just turn on Nickelodeon and you'll see ads for all of the things that teenagers are anxious about, and then switch it over to CNN and you'll see everything a 65-year-old is anxious about. Again, that's not super groundbreaking stuff, but it's important to understand and make sense out of the other thing that happens to us, which is called inattentional blindness. Inattentional blindness is what occurs when we're so focused on our most scarce resources that basic visual cues, even when they occur directly in our field of focus, go completely unnoticed. And you've been on the receiving end of this before. For example, imagine you're pitching a client a brand new paid media lead generation program, but the client's experiencing a cash shortage or a financial scarcity. They won't be able to focus on anything you're telling them about your amazing lead gen program except for how much it's going to cost them. The pitch will struggle to land until that scarce resource is no longer scarce. Or for example, a business owner who has a major time scarcity problem may decline a potentially invaluable meeting or business opportunity because all they can think about is how they don't have time to take it on. 
Scarcity drives our behaviors. Scarcity controls the cues that get our attention and the things that don't get our attention. It wears down our memory, it steals our attention, and it causes us to miss vital information even when it's happening right in front of us. And it's impacting all of us all the time in one way or another because we never have all of our needs or all of our resources met at the same time. We're always short of something. So if we're dealing with scarcity issues, our time and our money, for example, and our potential customers and clients are dealing with the same or similar issues, how do we possibly get them to spend those scarce resources with us? I'll get the obvious one out of the way early. Get better customers. Customers who will understand the impact of your work and pay you more to do that work. For example, in our beer on the beach scenario, the high earners were the ones who drove the price increase between the gas station and the resort groups. The low earners didn't pay any more or less for the gas station beer or the resort beer because they couldn't. They have a financial scarcity. And now that we understand how the decision-making of a potential buyer is impacted by the scarcities that they're dealing with, we can understand what's going on when their friend stands up and says, hey, what are you willing to pay for a beer? When that happens, all of a sudden they're no longer thinking about how amazing that beach is or how tasty a Mexican beer is. They're pulled out of that experience and now they're consumed by their financial scarcities and they shift into a cost analysis mode. They start to do mental accounting and move into a budgeting process. And they start to think about, well, if I buy that beer, where else do I need to cut back? This scarcity and this mental accounting is what pulls down the price they're willing to pay for a product or service. And this is exactly what your smaller customers or clients are doing to you. This is why the smaller clients sometimes seem like a much bigger headache than your larger clients. Because every time the smaller client is talking to you, emailing with you, working with you, they're doing this mental accounting. They're doing a cost analysis of your services. When you show them an amazing report and you think you're killing it, or you're telling them how much time your software has saved them, all they're doing is mapping that performance to what their expense is. They have this death grip on their expenses because your work is directly depleting their most scarce resource. And even if your work is the thing replenishing that scarce resource, they can't see it. They have blindness due to their scarcity. On the other hand, high earners in our Beer on the Beach example didn't have a financial scarcity. While the low earners paid the same for the gas station beer or the resort beer, the high earners paid significantly more for the resort beer. They didn't do a mental accounting and they weren't performing as stringent of a cost analysis. They still wanted to pay less at the gas station because of other factors, but they were willing to pay more when they felt they needed to. They wanted the beer. They wanted the full experience. They were willing to pay for it. So how do we get better clients? How do we attract buyers who are expecting and willing to pay more for our products and services while also potentially excluding the buyers who have financial scarcities and want to spend the whole relationship fighting over price? Think about how just the thought of buying a beer at the resort impacted the buyer's willingness to pay more, at least among those who could afford to. I'm not a branding guy, but in this case, the brand does matter and it goes well beyond the logo. The brand of a resort is stronger than the brand of a gas station because of years of accumulated brand reputation, customer experiences, overall brand awareness and recognition, and just overall customer service expectations. Each of these items compound to create a better perceived brand, a brand more people are willing to pay more to engage with when compared to a brand who has a poor reputation or inconsistent or poor quality products or just bad customer service. How the brand is experienced is incredibly important as well. Again, think back to our Apple Store versus T-Mobile. 
and how different they are and how much better the Apple Store experience is. Think about why the waiting room of a plastic surgeon feels so much different than the waiting room of an urgent care, and the type of clientele each attracts and what each type of clientele is expecting to pay. Think about the in-store experience of Target compared to Yves Saint Laurent and which one has a line running down the street, which is intentional, by the way. The physical context of where the shopping and transaction happens matters, and it matters threefold. For one, it's what allows you to create higher demand and charge a higher price, because when the experience is exceptional, people will pay more for that experience. And two, it naturally attracts the buyer who is able to pay your higher prices. And three, the financially scarce buyers won't even enter the store. They won't even begin the transaction process because they're appalled at your prices. They can't afford it. The cost to do business with you is too much for them. And that's okay. You want to price them out because more often than not, they're not worth dealing with. And the same goes for your website or in-app experience. If your website feels cheap, if it's a poor user experience, if it's difficult to navigate, if your differentiators aren't clearly articulated or your copy is overly salesy, your potential buyers will notice. Just like the physical shopping space, if your digital space is where you're expecting your main transactional process to take place, you can't have a website that looks like a proverbial gas station and expect to charge resort prices. You'll be attracting the gas station audience and building an experience that they're okay with, and they won't be able to pay the prices that you're charging, while the audience who can pay what you're charging won't be attracted to your business. So we've talked about building a brand with high market awareness, sustaining and building trust over a long period of time. We've talked about creating an exceptional customer experience that helps your brand rise to the top in the physical and digital space. And we've talked about charging a premium for that experience. We've discussed how when you do these things, it will create a gravitational pull of higher value clients while helping lower value clients self-select out. But another tool to raise prices without explicitly raising prices is finding ways to break a buyer's reference points. So like we talked about, customers who have previously purchased a product or a solution similar to yours will have an established reference point when they begin shopping. For example, if you've spent the last 10 years getting a sandwich on your lunch break every day, you'll know a sandwich should cost about $6. If all of a sudden you see a restaurant selling a $20 sandwich, you'll scoff at the price, you'll lose trust in the business, and think it's completely unfair pricing because you know what a sandwich should cost. And since sandwiches are not scarce, you'll just get one somewhere else. This type of internal reference point, if you let it stay in place, will become your buyer's price anchor for all future purchasing decisions, meaning you'll have to fall within the boundaries of this established reference. In marketplaces, this is called the clearing price. But you can break these reference points, and you can do it in a few different ways, which also create the perception of increased value and increased scarcity, allowing you to charge more. One way is to price or sell your product or service offering in different sizes or quantities or in a new format compared to your competitors, something where it's harder for the buyer to establish a reference price. For example, movie theater candy comes in sizes you don't see offered anywhere else, so it's harder for the buyer to know what it should cost. So per ounce, the movie theater is able to charge more, demanding a higher net margin per product sold. Another way to break a customer's reference price point, increasing the perceived price of the product or service you're offering, is by adding excessive luxury to the purchase. This can be done in terms of the quality of goods offered. For example, this happens when an automotive manufacturer offers a Louis Vuitton leather interior option in a new car. In your business, you can add excessive luxury by offering dedicated support teams at certain price points, 
or maybe a 24-7 real-time reporting dashboard, or personal access to the account manager 24 hours a day. Another example is when restaurants offer, you know, tours of the kitchen, tours of the wine cellar, a private tasting experience where the sommelier comes out and sabers a bottle of champagne tableside, because people who can will pay for these types of things. Another slightly more sneaky, but super common and very effective way to charge more is to integrate the price increase into a larger number. You see this a lot. For example, Super Bowl tickets are often sold in bundles, including hotel and airfare. This obscures the reference point. As the buyer, if you want to compare each element to a reference point, you'd have to price each one independently, which is what the buyers with financial scarcity will do. But less financially scarce buyers will just pay the bundled price, which is where the NFL hides the additional markup on the tickets. The buyers of these bundles also typically don't care and just consider any price increase as a convenience fee. Hotels have a variation of this too. For example, over special event weekends like college graduation, they'll require a three-night minimum stay. It's because hotels know that the demand is only for two nights, but they'll require a third. So let's say on a typical weekend, they charge $250 per night for two nights, which is $500 of revenue. With a three-night minimum, they can say they charge only $200 per night, tricking all of those online search filters and falling below or within an established reference point. But over three nights, it's actually $100 of additional revenue. Lastly, and I say this a lot, be one of one. When you're just one of many, buyers know there are a lot of options just like you where they can go to buy a similar service or product, so they go price shopping. But when you're one of one, they will pay what you ask them to pay because if they want you, you get to tell them what it costs to have you. You get to decide what you're worth relative to the value you're able to create. So again, to recap, build a brand that is loved and trusted by those who matter most to you. Create exceptional customer experiences in-store and online. Find ways to create a service offering offered and priced in a way that is unique to the market, fair to the buyer, and allows you to charge more for the value you create. And be the best in the world at it, or at least try to be the best in the world. There are not a lot of businesses checking all of these boxes. There aren't a lot of brands offering exceptional customer service, exceptional customer experiences, and best-in-class services. Most aren't even trying. This has created its own kind of scarcity, which I'll call brand scarcity. The brand scarcity is driven by the fact that clients are demanding better and better services and experiences, and there are less and less businesses able to meet those demands. In other words, there's asymmetrical supply and demand for great businesses. High demand, low supply. And remember, when you're in a scarce market, one where there's more demand than supply, buyers will willingly pay an exceptionally high price for the goods and services that are able to meet their demands at the exact moment their demands need to be met. And that's the business you want to be. That's the buyer you want to have. This is Dallas McLaughlin, and that was another episode of Unconsidered. If you made it this far, thank you so much. That means a lot to me. If you're interested, there's links to all of the research and a full episode transcript at my website, dallasmclaughlin.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on your podcast platform of choice and consider sharing it with a friend of yours. Until next time, keep working hard and have fun.